my wife and I were FaceTiming uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, her brother, sister-in-law, and they have a, uh, they have a baby. And their baby is just at that age where uh, he's walking. Okay, and uh, you, you've, you've had kids, you know this stage where it's cute and they're stumbling everywhere and sometimes their, their skeletal system hasn't exactly gotten to that place where they're walking well and their muscular system's a little shot, you know, they're still working. And so you, like, you grab their hands and you kind of help them walk along and uh, they start maturing and they grow and you're watching them kind of stumble and walk on their own and it's getting really cute and awesome and they get to this point then where they're walking pretty proficiently. And every once in a while, they may fall and trip up, but you know, they're doing a really, really, really good job. And you're a proud parent because you're excited uh, about how your children are maturing and walking as they ought to as human beings, because we all have those, the ability to walk any normal human being with the right muscles, the right uh, skeletal system. That's just what we do as humans. And so it's a really big mile marker in a child's life when they start walking and we celebrate it and it's exciting. But imagine with me, uh, your child, uh, eight years old, eight years old, and your baby never started walking. You take them to the doctor, and your doctor checks the skeletal system, checks the, their muscular system and everything, and they say, this, baby, this baby's good to go. Not a baby anymore, it's a child. This child's good to go. Like, there's no reason why this child's not walking. Uh, at that point, it stops becoming cute that your child's not walking. Like, at this point, it becomes a problem and a, an actual concern right? that you, this child is way past the age of when they should be walking, uh, but they're just not. And it turns out that the doctors are just saying, your child doesn't want to, okay? But, you know, they're still young, and so you're like, all right, all right, all right. Now, imagine your child being 16 years old, okay, and refusing to walk, refusing to get, to get around, and you think, okay, this was cute when you were one, but you're 16 years old now. Like, you exist to walk. And imagine now uh, your, your parents, your mom and a dad, if your 16-year-old child isn't walking, guess who's doing all the work? Mom and dad, okay, they're, I don't know if they have life, you know, adult size uh, little push cart. what are those things called? Push strollers, push carts, buggies, yeah, push carts, you know, you can tell I don't have any kids right now. <laughs> a little cart, a little buggy, I'll call them it a buggy. All right, imagine a life-size buggy for your 16-year-old, okay, can you imagine walking your 16-year-old around, pushing them around in a buggy, because they won't walk. Now imagine you have four, five kids, 16 years old, all of them, and none of them want to walk. You get how ridiculous this starts to sound because you start to see the toll that this is going to take on two mature people who are walking with all of these now, basically, in most societies, grown adults who won't walk. There's a problem here. Now, I want you to shift your position from thinking about a family to thinking about the church because the Bible has a lot to say about how we walk peripateo, the Greek word of walking. And it's not about you and me stepping, stepping, stepping. It's about our livelihoods. It's about how we live our lives as Christians. And how we live our lives as Christians uh, says a lot about uh, what we believe about God. And when we look at all, all churches, oftentimes, one of the problems that we're going to run into is we see a lot of people who say they're Christians, but they're not walking. And of course, we know that new Christians, you think of a new Christian in light of being reborn, well, they're infants. Well, of course, they're going to have a hard time walking because they're new in the faith. 
because they're growing and their spiritual muscles and spiritual skeleton is maturing. And these things are just normal, okay? And so it's cute when you, you like, you'd like to see it. You know, raw, newborn Christian, and, and you know, they're saying things. You're like, ah, I don't think you should be saying that. But, like, but you're so happy that, like, you know what? That person's life is transforming before our eyes. And when they become six or seven years old, they start walking and they're proficient. And, and you're, you just you applaud that. But what if the new Christian, baby Christian, infant, becomes a six-year-old Christian and a 10-year-old Christian and a 16-year-old Christian, but yet they never start walking? You see, then it becomes dangerous, right? Just like you, at the time that your child is 16 years old and they're not walking, you go from being the the helpful, uh, you know, jolly parent who's trying to help your kid to, hey, you need to get up and walk because this is not only you know, bad for you, this is detrimental to your health. This is detrimental to you being a human. Like your muscles are never going to form right. Your skeletal system is going to malfunction and your tendons are going to tighten up and you're just going to shift all of your ligaments and your bones and you're going to have a problem even existing in five or six years if you don't start walking. And so many times in our churches, we have Christians, uh, people who turn away from their sins and they trust in Christ, but like they never start walking. They never parapateo. They never start living their life for Christ. And that becomes a big problem as you start getting older as a Christian because your life becomes looking anything but the life of a Christian, anything but a biblical Christian. And that's a problem. It's a problem because as Christians, we must live according to what the Bible teaches regarding life and godliness. Right? And the reason is, is because when you're a Christian, you become rooted. Right? And that's a, the word uh, that Paul uses in this letter to Colossians, which you can flip there already if you have your Bible with you. Flip open to Colossians chapter 2. Uh, but this word rooted means that, hey, at salvation, at justification, we are planted in Christ. I mean, there is no way to get more rooted than you already are. And so you're rooted in Christ. And you walking is how you're going to mature and grow in Christ. And so some of you in here may have this problem that you say, you know what, I haven't grown in Christ. I've never grown in Christ. Well, there's only two outcomes here. Either one, you're not a Christian, and and maybe you suffer from what we call believism. You believe all the right things about God, but you never responded to Him. Well, I'm not talking to this group, but that could be a real problem. Okay, I'm talking to the group of people who have truly repented of their sins, they've trusted in Christ, but they've never been discipled, or they've never started walking in their faith, and you may have this problem. You say, I don't know. I know I'm supposed to be mature. My friend got saved around the same time I did. They're mature. They're walking. Their life is fruitful. Their life is abundant, but mine's not. Well, because being a Christian means that we have to walk in Christ. That means we have to live our lives in a certain way that the Bible informs. And we do that because we want to grow and mature. And that's what Paul is teaching here in Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Uh, And we don't want to neglect walking, right? That's a problem. When you neglect walking as a Christian, uh, you do uh, risk things like uh, living in sin, right? Neglecting uh, the things in life that allow you to mature. Imagine uh, you, when you live in sin, it causes things like grief and shame and regret. You know this to be true in your life just as a human. You've all had grief and shame and regret. Now, There can be Christians that are really Christians who still suffer from grief, shame, and regret. Now, the problem is in our society, uh, for people who aren't living according to God's Word, uh, as Christians, you can be dealing with grief, shame, and regret, and you say, well, the gospel's not working for me because I'm still dealing with all these bad feelings. And the problem with that is uh, grief and shame are actually really good biblical indicators that our life isn't aligned with Scripture. 
And so many people in our society want to point at grief and shame and say, well, grief and shame is the problem. You need to get rid of grief and shame. Well, the problem isn't grief and shame. The problem is, is sin. The, pop- the problem is you not living, uh, walking, peripateo in the Greek is what we're talking about in Colossians. You're not walking out your faith in Christ. So we're going to talk about the implications of walking and what that looks like. But what we have to see is the danger of neglecting to live according to God's word is we have a habit of just living in perpetual sin for the rest of our lives, not, not realizing that God's given us a way out here, right? And it's not a works-based salvation, but it requires us to work because we got to grow and we got to mature and our muscles have to grow strong and our ligaments have to grow strong. And that's what it takes to build God's church is mature Christians who are growing in their faith. And Paul introduces this in uh, chapter 2, verses 6 or 7. Go ahead and look at it with me. Uh, These two verses are so important to this letter because they're actually the theme verses of the whole letter. Like, if you're like, what is this whole thing about? What is the entire letter to the Colossians about? It's found right here. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in Him, rooted and built up and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. If you wanted a good summary, a Cliff Notes version of what Paul is trying to help the Colossians understand, that's it. And so let's go ahead and look at it. Go ahead and look at the first verse, verse 6. And let's go, let's go through these two verses. In verse 6 it says this, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You remember this... I've already told you this is the hinge verse, right? So that therefore at the beginning is very important because therefore comma means that everything that was said before this is important to inform what we're about to hear. And so when we see therefore, that's important because everything he's about to say is because of what he just said previously. And so I'll give you the really short condensed version of what he said before this. Basically, all the things leading up to this one, uh, these two scriptures is this, because of your faith in Christ the Lord who saved you from certain Justice. That's really what it is, right? It's because of your faith in Christ the Lord who saved you from certain justice. That's really what all of this up to this point is. And because of that, now, therefore, look at verse 6. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So that's what the therefore is therefore, is because it's trying to tell you, okay, because of what Christ has done, because of who He is, now this is your responsibility in that. Isn't that great to know that you and I have a responsibility to respond appropriately, not only in salvation and our justification, but also in our sanctification, that uh, our life in Christ doesn't stop the moment that we're saved. It actually continues in a walking manner for the rest of our lives. That's the beautiful thing about this is Paul saying, listen, you've received him. Now keep going. Walk in him. And so that's uh, what we got to focus on. And what we will focus on this morning is walking in Christ. Something I want you to pay attention to is the next phrase, though. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. What I don't want you to do is when you look at this, when you look at this from a surface level and say, oh, as I received Christ Jesus the Lord, I'm talking about my salvation. That's how I received him. I, you know, I prayed a prayer and I received Christ into my life. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is as you've received the message, okay? As, as, as you've received the proclaimed message. And we know that because of the context. Uh, the context is who gave the message to the Colossians? Epaphras did, right? And what is Paul fighting in Colossae? The heresies of these other proclaimed messages that are trying to make their way into the Colossian church that Paul's trying to say, stay away from these. 
And so those contexts show you that this, that the message that you received is a proclaimed message, and then all it is is the gospel. This isn't saying that we've actually made a decision, although he does say that you have received this message. What you need to see is the received message is what's proclaimed. And I say that because it's a general message, not saying, hey, this is what I did. You can do what you want to do. You can do what you want to do. Paul's talking about a definite, def- definitive gospel proclamation that is been proclaimed through all the world, is what he's talked about in chapter 1. And it's important for you to know that it's not just, hey, you heard this and I heard this. No, he's talking about an actual gospel presentation that you and I have come to know as the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says that you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, he's saying you have heard the proclaimed message that's gone out in the whole world. And as we've heard already, Paul's saying this message was good enough for the world, it's good enough for you guys. And there ain't no uh, other uh, philosophy or no other stoic philosophers or other ideas that can come in and change that. It, it is the proclaimed message, and we don't change the proclaimed message. So that's what it's saying. And he says, because of that proclaimed message that you received from Epaphras, that Epaphras received from Paul, that Paul received from direct revelation from Jesus on the road to Damascus, because of all that, here's what you have to do. See, that was all that to get to this one thing, walk in him. And as, as simple as this is, it's very difficult to live out in our lives. Right? Look, do you realize all that we have to do, repent of our sins, trust in Jesus Christ, and walk in him? I mean, you could write a kid's storybook on that, and it would be best-selling. Everyone's like, my kid's going to understand that. But do we? I mean, we may know it intellectually, But do we do it? I mean, do we live that out? And that's the problem that we're going to face here. And Paul is going to show, here's how we can walk this out. Here's how we can live out our faith in Christ Jesus. Because it's necessary that we do. And we need to all come to agreement on that. It does require us to do something. We can't earn our faith. But when we have faith, we have a requirement to do and live and act differently. It is the goal and the point of being a Christian then is that we're justified in Christ. Now we have to do something. We have to live and act. Uh, this is so important to Paul. And I don't know if he meant to do this. Obviously, the Spirit, carried, as he carried him along, wrote all this, right, through Paul and his personality. Uh, but you know, this is the only, up to this point in Scripture, walk in him is the first imperative of this whole letter. You know what an imperative is, right? It's a word that says you got to go do something. Like, can you believe we've gone through 11 weeks of church planning here at Compass Bible Church, 11 weeks, and we have not read one imperative this entire time? It was Paul talking about, here's what Christ has done. Here's what he's done in your life. Here's who he is. There's all these things. And it has not yet once told us to do anything. And this is the first time in the entire letter where Paul says, okay, now you need to do something. Because we can't do anything if we don't know the right things. And so Paul clearly presented the gospel, who Christ is, what he's done, and what impact that should have on our life. And now he's saying, because of all that, you need to walk in him. Now, the word walk, peripateo, right? You can write that down, parapateo, parapateo in Greek. Uh, in uh, Jewish background, which is where Paul comes from, right? Jewish background, uh, this word actually was the ethical standard, right? And that's really what this, this word means, that you are living up to your ethical, moral standard. So parapateo has a literal behavioral undergirding of this word. It says your life has to be different. Like your ethics are different. Your morals are different. Your decision-making is different because you are walking in Christ. And for some reason, there is this hurdle here that so many people don't want to jump over uh, in, in, in a church, but yet you do practically jump over it every day, right? Uh, when you, uh, you don't have uh, unnecessary conflict with your spouse. Why? Because the Bible teaches you not to. 
right? Uh, you discipline your child. Why? Society tells you not to, but why do you do it? Because the Bible teaches you to do it. We can go on and on and on about how you practically jump over this hurdle every day of your life because you know the Bible demands that we live differently, but we don't want to say it. But what we have to be able to do as Christians is to say, hey, if I'm a Christian, I have to walk like a Christian. I have no choice, right? You're not saying that i got to work for my salvation and they're legalistic and you can't be a Christian if you're not doing this, this, and this. However, what we are saying is, if I'm a Christian, I'm going to do this, this, and this. Did you see the difference in that equation? Right? I didn't do these things so I could become a Christian, but I do these things because I'm a Christian. And there's no way around that. Right? And there may be some of us who God is working on, and we're not, and we're not at this point where we're willing to assert that and do that. Uh, but that is what it means to be Christian, is that we're living life differently. You, you're not going to be a Christian, live your life for yourself, and then somehow get up to heaven and just, I'm loving everything I'm now doing that I was never doing before, and God is just completely, you know. No, I mean, we have to be living that way here, and that's the goal of sanctification, the big word that God is conforming us to his image. And so as we grow our spiritual muscles and begin walking, we're always going to be conformed more into the image of Christ. And that's so important as we look at the rest of the Scripture that we, number one on your outline, embrace the lifestyle transformation the gospel requires. A long sentence, we need to embrace the lifestyle transformation the gospel requires. There's a verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, you can jot that down. It gives you a, uh, in my opinion, it gives you an easier definition of exactly what Paul just said to the church in Colossians. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus Christ that as you received from us, do you hear that received? Remember I told you just a second ago that, that, that re- there's a message that, that, that Paul said that you received Christ Jesus the Lord? Well, it's not just a reception into my heart. It's a receiving a message. And that's why Paul literally says the same thing here in Thessalonians. He says, you received from us the message of how you ought to walk and to please God that you should do so more and more. So what he literally is saying, hey, the message that you received us has consequential implications for you, and that's you got to continue living in what you have received. And what we have received is called God's Word, the Bible. That's right. Well, okay. All right. The Bible, just in case you have a pop quiz next week, it's the Bible. That's the word that we've received that if you, if you think about it, right, Epaphras heard it from Paul. Paul heard it from Christ. Paul was an apostle. Christ is, a, is the foundation and the cornerstone of the church. And everything we have in the New Testament is written by an apostle, written, well, yeah, written by an apostle or prophet and received from Christ. So the same thing that they're saying that they received is the same thing that you and I have right now. It's just in written form and not verbal form. Do you see the implications of that, how big that is? Like you and I have not received anything different than the church in Thessalonica or the church in Colossae. It's the same thing which means the implications are the same. Like, we have to live this thing out. We have to embrace this lifestyle transformation. Uh, flip to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, which is just a, probably a page turn away from where we are right now. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. I want you to embrace the lifestyle transformation the gospel requires. And what I want you to see is the Bible is for a lifestyle transformation, right? The Bible preaches that your life has to look different. And not to mention, it's not something that you're, no, you're not a puppet, right? You're not a puppet when you came to Christ, and you're not a puppet in Christ. You, you hear what I'm saying here, right? So many of us want to think about salvation is when I become a Christian, then Christ is either going to make me do all the good things, or I'm just not going to do them. And I'm going to show you through Scripture 
that that was never the case, right? You, you came to Christ, and you still have a work to do in Christ. And it's not Christ saying, oh, I'm going to make you do all these good things to please me. No, he's saying you, this is your job, to, to please me through the way that you live and the way you act. Now, Colossians 3, verse 5. Verse 5 through 10 is what we'll be looking at. First three words, put to death. That's already an action, right? You already have to take part in sanctification. And here it is. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. I love this, what it's saying. You've got to kill those things that aren't pleasing to God. Does it say God's going to do those? No, who's, what is it, who is it talking to? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Right Now, we understand we have the Holy Spirit. He's going to empower us, give us the strength, and all those things to do that, because we just talked about that like four weeks ago. But we understand that it's our job, it's my job and your job to put to death what is earthly in you. There's a walking required. There's a you and I doing this thing required. And now here's what you need to put to death. What is sexually immoral in you? What is impure in you? Your passion, your evil desires, your covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is what we got to see here, is you realize that the wrath of God was coming upon you and me because of our sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Like, we understand those were the actions that were the underlying issue of the root of sin in our life. And that's exactly why the wrath of God was coming down on us and society. And so the, the problem is, is when we become Christians, we're thinking, all right, no wrath for us. When the Bible is teaching you like, yeah, yeah, you need to thank God that you're justified, but because you're justified means you shouldn't be living in that anymore. And God's not going to puppeteer you out of that. He wants you to walk, and as you walk out of those things, he's going to empower you with the Holy Spirit to not live in such a life. But we got to walk. You and I have to stop, and we have to kill sin. We have to put it to death, and we got to get away with it. Right? And it says in verse 7, And these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now, that's why I love this, but now you must put them all away. Do you know put right there? It is imperative. That means that's something you do, right? But now you must put them all away. Get rid of them. All those things that made you an enemy of God, all those things that you walk in, even though you're still a Christian and you dabble in these things, get rid of them, all right? Anger. Now, there's some, maybe, you, maybe you don't want to admit to these upper ones up there, which sound really, really bad, but what about you? Are you an, are you an angry person, a wrathful person, malice? Do you slander? Does obscene talk come out of your mouth? I mean, these things are things that you have to put away when you're walking in Christ. A walk in Christ means those things have to be put away from me, and it's a work for you to do. It's something for you to walk in. Verse 9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off, I love this, you have put off the old self with its practices. This is the same theme in Ephesians, if you read the letter of Ephesians. This idea of, I'm, it's like a coat, okay? I'm putting off the dirty, sinful coat, okay? And that's what it says. And then look at verse 10. And put on the new self. So it is you putting, putting off the life of sin and putting on a life of righteousness. Now, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which means you need to be dressing up and getting ready to live in righteousness, right? Christ has clothed you in righteousness. Now, you need to be walking in righteousness, which means you put off. Can you imagine for a moment you, you putting on the right? You never took your sin clothes off, right? and uh, your dirty clothes, but yet you have a brand new dry clean jacket that you just put on all over that nasty sin, right? And like you're trying to walk around in righteousness, but in reality, you're like what Jesus calls the Pharisees, right? Like on the outside, you look clean, but on the inside, you're dirty, right? You clean the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup's unclean. 
Right? You can't, we can't live like that. Right? We have to live out what we believe. What we believe on the inside has to come out on the outside, and it will. And that's, what I, that's the danger here. It will, as, as Christians or non-Christians or wherever you stand here, what you truly believe is going to come out in the way that you act. And that's why I'm saying, and the Bible says as Christians, you've got to walk out in righteousness and live this life the way that pleases and honors God. All right, put on the new self. And here's the good thing, and this is what I want you to see. Yes, you are doing work, but you aren't the one who's bringing it about in you. Because I love this, verse 10. Put on the new self, something you got to do, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. It's always a reminder in Scripture that, yes, you've got work to do, but who undergirds that work and brings that work to completion is always God. Right? God is always the active agent in making you who he wants you to be. Right? But what he's asking you to do is get up off the floor and start walking. Right? Maybe you do have to hold his hand. Maybe you are the toddler who can barely walk and you're getting help. That's fine, but walk. Right? It doesn't matter which walker you are. What it matters is that you are walking. Right? And maybe you are 16 years old in your Christian faith right now, or 20 years old, and you're lying on the floor. Get up and just start walking. And you're going to get sore. I told this at the 9 o'clock service. One of the problems with our Christian faith, especially when you haven't walked with the Lord for years and years and years, and you start walking for the Lord for the first time in your life, you start walking and you get really, really sore. Well, yeah, of course you do. You have no muscles, right? You have no spiritual muscles. So when you start doing things for the Lord, it's going to start hurting, and it's going to start being painful. How many of you guys, when you start working out, uh, during the first week you work out, it's super painful? You can't sit down. You can barely move. You can't reach out and grab things. I mean, everything is really, really sore. But you know in that same, that same situation, you have a, a decision to make. Do I keep going because I know if I keep going, the soreness will stop and I'll keep growing? Or do I just stop and sit back down because I don't, I'm not ready for this? That's our Christian lives. And we have a decision to make to say, I'm not going to sit down. I'm going to keep moving. And so this is a warning and an encouragement for those of you who haven't been walking in your faith over these past few years to say, Get up, and you're going to be sore. And it's going to be okay if you're sore. Keep being sore, and you're going to get to this point where you start walking well. And you're going to, be, you're going to have very strong spiritual muscles, very strong skeletal structure, and you're going to be pleasing, and you're going to be building up God's church, and you're going to be leading people to Christ. You're going to be doing all these things that you couldn't do before just because you decided to get up and walk. <clears throat> we all have the question, and I hear it all the time, how do I grow in my faith? How do I grow in my faith? We all want to know. I mean, even secular uh, atheists or, or deists or, you know, you, you fill in the blank. Everybody wants to grow in spiritualism or spirituality or religion. or We all want to do it. But as a Christians, we have a genuine uh, question that deserves a good answer of, how do I grow in my faith? Well, the Bible answers it in verse 7, right? Uh, it is actually your commitment. You hear that? It's your commitment in walking in righteousness through Christ that's going to grow your faith. Did you hear that? I want to repeat that because I want you to understand what I said, not just, oh, he's, this is a transition statement. It's, it is a transition statement, but it's also a really important statement. If you want to grow in Christ, you have to have a commitment to walking in righteousness through Christ. That's how you're going to grow in your faith. And Paul spells that out here at the beginning of verse 7. Go ahead and look at it with me. He says, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. And here's how it happens rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. There is a whole lot of English, Greek stuff we could talk about here, but what I would like to suffice it to say this. Uh, rooted is not something that you do, okay? And you go into the Greek or go, in, you go into your Bible study tools and, and, and find the, the roots of this and the verb tenses of this, and you'll see that being rooted in here is a, is a 
passive perfect tense. And all that means is this, you can't root yourself in Christ. So what I'm not going to do in this sermon is give you three ways to root yourself in Christ this morning. That would be doing a disservice to the text. What's important about this text is to show you that being rooted in Christ simply means this, that you've repented of your sins and you trusted in Christ. When you turn away from your sins and you trust in Christ, guess what, my friend? You're rooted in Christ. You can't get any more rooted in Christ than you are at salvation. And so if you're saved in here and maybe you haven't been walking with Christ because you haven't been getting up and you've been sitting down, guess what? You're no less rooted in Christ than I am. Okay? So the problem, what you have got to see, is not the root. And this is so important. The problem of your faith is not the root because the root is Christ. And there's nothing wrong with Christ. And this is, again, what Paul's saying to the Colossians. Listen, you're rooted in Christ, and there's nothing, there's nothing insufficient about that root. That root is perfect. That root is going to help you grow. The problem is, is the way you apply it. And so what I'm saying here is the problem in your Christian life, if you are a plant, is not the root. The problem is your growth and your maturity. Are you bringing in what it takes for a plant to grow? Are you bringing in what's necessary for you to be built up and grow and be fruitful? The problem isn't the root. The problem is how we are living our life, how a plant is taking in nutrients. And so the question is, how are you taking in nutrients to grow in your faith? Because there's nothing wrong with the root. We all know that to be the case, because that's what Paul just said. Nothing wrong with the root. But the question is, how are you being built up? That's the next phrase, built up. The only difference between the verb rooted and the verb built up is that rooted is a perfect tense, which means it's something that was already done. You can't add to it. But built up is a present tense participle verb. You don't have to know what all that means. All you got to know is this. It's something that's happening right now. It's passive, which means you're not actually doing it, right? It's being done by the Holy Spirit, but it's something that happens as you walk, right? As you walk. Remember, the only imperative verb here is walk. The rest of them are participles, which just means they add to the meaning of walk, okay? So the important thing is that I'm walking. And as you are walking, you don't have to do one, two, three, four, five, six, six, seven things to be built up. As you're walking, you will be built up. Just like you know that as you walk and as you work out, guess what's going to happen? Your muscles are going to get stronger, right? You know that as I walk, my muscles will get stronger. Well, as you walk in your faith in Christ, you're going to be built up. That's what the Spirit does in your life. Now, rooted, built up, established in the faith. Same thing. It's a Participle verb, present, passive, which means you can't, you're not doing it, right? You're not doing the establishing in your faith. The Spirit is doing that in your life as you are. Come on, as you are walking. That's right. That's the good news here. This is so good for those of us who are like, I'm, I'm, I'm inept, I'm incapable, I'm, you know, I'm all these things. I can never do it. Good. That, it's not for you to be able to be competent in doing. All Christ has asked you to do is walk. That's the good news. And the problem is, well, how do I walk? You want to go there? You know how to walk. Have you read the Bible? Right? It, it teaches you how to walk in righteousness. And what I'm saying, the difference between you walking in righteousness and a non-Christian walking in righteousness, pay attention here because this is where everyone's going to get hung up. Everyone, society, I hope you don't because you're a good Bible student. The difference between a Christian walking in righteousness and a non-Christian walking in righteousness is this, that a Christian has a spirit of God within them that is walking them in righteousness. And so they can walk in righteousness for righteousness sake. A non-Christian has no spirit of God in them, so they can't walk in righteousness. They're, they're, not, they're not able to walk in righteousness. Even when they try, they're going to find it impossible to walk in righteousness. The difference is we're all called to walk in righteousness. We all are. The only The, the big hinge difference is we can, and we should, and we have to, and we ought to, and we must to, because we're Christians. 
Like that is really what we're saying here. And the good news is the Spirit of God's going to do that in us as we're walking. Good. We're going we're to get there, all right? All right. And then here's, here's the last phrase here that you need to see. You're going to be rooted, built up, and established in the faith just as you were taught. This is so important. Remember, I just told you earlier that uh, it is the message, it's the, I don't say message, in verse 6, therefore, as you received Christ, remember I told you that wasn't the individual reception of accepting Christ. Uh, the reason is, is because right here it says, just as you were taught. It's a message that they were propagating throughout the world, and it was the gospel. And so he's saying, you're going to be rooted, you're going to be built up, and you're going to be established in the faith just as you were taught. Just as the message that you heard from Epaphras, who heard it from me, and I heard it from Christ, that I've given it to all these people in Ephesus who have been spreading it out around there, and how you guys ought to be sharing that gospel with others, that's how you ought to be walking. Now, this should show us the importance of sitting under the teaching of God's Word. Right? And, and some of you in here, this is where you stand. You say, I, I, I don't know how to walk in my faith. Right? I have a problem understanding what steps I need to take. Okay, and I'm telling you, the reason that the Colossians knew how to do it is because they were taught. They were taught how to do it. And this is a great foundational sermon for you to see, okay, I've got to walk. Uh, how do I do that? Well, Paul uses the rest of his letter to Colossians to literally tell you how to do it. How to do it in marriage, how to do it in parenting, how to do it in your workplace. Did you know the book of Colossians talks about that? It sure does. Okay, but it's going to take us about eight or nine months to get through the whole thing. Uh, But for you to see, it doesn't stop here. Like Whatever you're hearing here, it doesn't stop here. This is where it starts. Verse 6 and 7 is where it starts. How do I continue walking in Christ? And that's the good news. And for you to understand it, you need to be reading God's Word, and you need to be sitting under the teaching of God's Word. And so like, if this message, you're like, that's interesting, but I think there's more. There is more. Come back. All right? We're going to go through the rest of this. All right, We're going to go through the rest of it. Uh, coming back, that's actually point number two. You need to continue moving forward. Okay, You've got to continue moving forward. The whole idea of the Christian faith is we're forgetting what lies behind, and we are pressing forward, moving forward. That's right. It's actually Philippians 3. You can actually jot that down. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. I want you guys to see how important it is for us to live different lives. Again, does, does, uh, does uh, your own righteousness save you? All right. Can you save yourself? Does good work save you? That's what I'm saying, right? I'm, all those things, exactly what I'm saying. And you've got to leave here knowing that. But the problem is that so many people don't want to have the conversation because you've got to know your Bible in order to have this conversation. And we want you to know your Bible so you can have this conversation. Because here's what Paul is saying when it comes to moving forward, when it comes to living in righteousness, when it comes to saying, I've got work to do. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Paul says this. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Well, that's a relief. Paul's saying he's not perfect. It's good news, Okay. All right, good news. Paul's not perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Do you see what he just said? I'm not perfect, but what am I, what am I doing? I'm going to keep moving, right? That's, that, is Christ, that is our Christian faith. Hey, Hayden, your pastor is not perfect, but what am I going to do? I'm going to keep moving. You're not perfect, but what are you going to do? We're going to keep moving. This, isn't this good news? Like, you, this could be a, such a dreary sermon Like if you don't have the right mindset here. The, the proper mindset is saying, I stink, right? I stink. But guess what? God's going to grow me if I just keep moving. Like That's the good news here. Like, and that, there's nothing more joyful and exciting than saying, I don't have to sit where I'm sitting right now because God wants to move me forward, and all I got to do is walk, and he's going to grow me. This is exciting stuff here, guys. All right? 
All right, now I love this. But I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Come on, guys. Come on. Do you love Jesus that much? Like Paul's saying, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to keep moving forward because Jesus made me his. Do you love Jesus that much? Where you're willing to say, I don't understand everything about the Bible, but what I do know is Jesus made me his own. And if Jesus made me his own, I'm going to be his own. Do you love Jesus that much? Where you're going to say, maybe I don't know all the things about righteousness and good works and how it's tied to me living out my salvation. I don't get all those things, but what I do know is that Jesus made me his. And if Jesus made me his, I'm going to, I'm going to be living in my life like I'm his. You can at least get to that point where you say, yeah, that's exactly right. I want to live my life like that. And he says in verse 13 there in Philippians 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This entire scripture is about moving us forward in our faith, looking forward to the faith and the reality that is going to be revealed to you and I when Christ comes and he takes his church. There's the culmination of all this. Our perfection is tied up in Christ coming and taking us with him. All right, But up until that point, we still have work to do. We still have sanctification that needs to happen. Understanding that at the end of this, we're all going to be made perfect in Christ. We're all going to be called upward to the heavenly call, and we're all going to be reigning with Christ. That's the good news. And even in that itself, you should, be, you should be working so hard right now because you know, man, Christ is coming back and he's going to get us. We're going to be perfect. And I want to be even more encouraged because I'm his that I'm going to be living that way now. I'm going to be pushing and moving forward in my faith now. There's a lot of things you can do, uh, but a couple of things I want you to, to, to try. Like, if you are saying, I want to move forward, how do I move forward? Pastor Hayden, help me. I'll give you some. The Bible, uh, Colossians is going to tell you a lot of that as we go through this series uh, moving forward. Uh, but here's something I want you to do. Uh, there's a book you can buy. It's called uh, the Personal Spiritual Disciplines. That's a short title. That's not the whole title. But it's, uh, the, who wrote it is Don Whitney. Don Whitney wrote this book. Uh, called Personal Spiritual Disciplines. And uh, this book is actually really great. He's a friend of Compass's. He uh, is a wonderful man who's written a book on how I can undergird my faith with personal spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and journaling and Bible study and community. And it basically writes out, here's a bunch of ways that you can begin developing your maturity and be working out your spiritual muscles so that you're walking in righteousness, so you can continue moving forward. That's a really great book and just a quick resource for you to say, hey, you can go get that book by Don Whitney. Uh, it's a really great book. I recommend it highly for you to work on your personal spiritual disciplines because it's going to help you move forward in your faith. Now, I know that there's something here, and it's, it's a friction that you all feel, that I feel, okay? The, the question is going to be, okay, uh, I realize there's a lot of work for me to do, right? A lot of work for me to do, a lot of work for you to do. And the problem with our flesh is our flesh always wants to take uh, responsibility for all the good that happens, right? You call it pride. Uh, you call it all these things. It, I am selfish. It's about me. And, and a lot of us in our Christian faith say, well, I don't want to do all that righteous stuff because then I'll think it's about me. I'm like, then that just proves how much further you need to start walking, okay? That means you need to be walking more if you think it's you. And what I'm saying is you have to look past this idea that somehow you living in righteousness is going to make it about you. 
That just means that you're not making it about God. You are making it about you, and that's a sin, and you don't need to do that. Put that off and put on righteousness, okay? You've got to get over that hump and that friction. You can't live. You can't say, I don't want to live righteous life because it's not about me. You're right. It's not about you. That's why you live a righteous life, okay? We'll leave that there because this is what the rest of this sermon is going to entail. It's okay. The question is, how do I keep my walk in perspective? How do I keep my walk in perspective? And the question is, how do I not become conceited? How do I not become prideful? How do I not become egotistical and judgmental and legalistic? Because this is a question maybe you don't have for yourself because maybe you don't get these things, but that's your concern, especially for your pastor who's teaching you that you should be doing righteous things. Like, well, pastor, how, do you, how would you not be conceited and prideful and egotistical and judgmental and legalistic? Well, I'll tell you how. As a matter of fact, Paul will tell you how in the last phrase in verse 7. He says, you're going to be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you were taught, and you're going to do it abounding in thanksgiving. Okay, You want to know, uh, have you ever met a conceited, prideful, egotistical, judgmental, legalistic person who was abounding in thanksgiving? I've never met one. Right? I've, I've never met someone who makes it all about themselves who can equally say, this is not about me. I'm just giving so much thanks to God that God would save me from the pit of despair, that I was in the mire and muck of sin, and I was dead in my sins, and Christ saved me. Like, even in that, that's a testimony about how God has transformed your life. It's not about me. So my righteousness is also not about me. right? And that's what we have to see. Our righteous living has nothing to do with you and me. Absolutely zero. It has everything to do with God. And what we have to do is understand that abounding, in the Greek it's overflowing, that means abounding, and not a word we use, but you do use overflowing, right? When uh, your pool overflows with water in the summertime, the water's got to go somewhere, okay? Uh, when uh, you're, you're, you fill up your glass full of uh, Dr. Pepper, I don't even drink Dr. Pepper, but somebody in here does, all right? And uh, it gets too full and it starts overflowing. Well, the problem is it has got to go somewhere. Now, the good thing about your Thanksgiving that's overflowing is it's got to go somewhere. So when you are overflowing with Thanksgiving, it's going to spill into the lives of other people. It's going to spill into the life of the church. Right? If we're all in here giving thanks and giving thanks, uh, a lot of you guys, there's, there's quite a few guests in here this morning, but a lot of you are, are part of Compass Bible Church. And if you imagine if after service, you all, the first thing you did is turned around and said one thing you were thankful for that God has done in your life, how much that would be outpouring over our church. I mean, our guests would be like, man, that church, there are a lot of things. Pastor's a little crazy, uh, but that church is super thankful, right? That church, just they were just all talking about how God has done things in their life. That's what it means to be overflowing in Thanksgiving, that it's something that overflows out of being rooted and built up and established in the faith. And here's the good news. Remember I was telling you about those participle verbs, passive, perfect, present tense, okay? The good thing about uh, the word uh, overflowing is it is a participle, which means it comes out of your walk, but it is a present active. Do you hear that present active? Do you know what that means? It's something that we get to do. It's something that we get to take part in. So I can give you, here's three ways that you can abundantly exercise your thankfulness. And that's point number three. Abundantly exercise your thankfulness. I'm going to give you three ways you can do that. Abundantly. Can you put that point number three up on the screen? Abundantly exercise your thankfulness. I think it's getting up there. There it is. All right. All right. Abundantly exercise your thankfulness. And here's three ways you can do it. Number one, it's in your prayer. Right? If you have a hard time articulating thankfulness and prayer, it's got to start there. Because if you have a hard time articulating thankfulness and prayer, can, can you pay attention to me real quick? That means you have a problem 
thinking about things that you've been thankful about that day that God has done, right? If you have a hard time coming up with a list of things you're thankful for, it's because you're not thinking about God that much that day. It's because you're not thinking about how God has intervened in your life this morning, how God has intervened in your family today, how God has intervened in the life at work, and and all of those great things, right? Um, There was a wreck on the highway the other day, and we were driving home, and I can take that moment as a thankfulness to God that He has preserved me from an accident, right? But a lot of us are just angry because we're in traffic, right? And that's what I'm saying. You need to take time and think in righteousness of, hey, God have preserved me from getting in a wreck. He didn't stick me in traffic. Okay, you see what I'm saying? We have to begin conforming our minds to Christ, and that happens by living in righteousness. So we need to be taking time to pray Thanksgiving. And I'll, I'll give you a little acrostic, a little way that you can do that. Uh, a, adoration. A, adoration. Right? In your prayer, you need to be thanking God, adoring Him. I shouldn't say thanking, that's later. Adoring Him. By God, you are great. Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, right? You are high and exalted. Your thoughts are above mine. Your ways are far beyond my ways. That's adoring him. And you need to be spending time in your prayer life saying things like that. Because if you don't, you risk making God like you. And you risk making God man. And God is not man, right? That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The most shocking thing about the gospel is that Jesus became a man, right? That's the exception to God is that he became man. So like what the problem is, is when we just try to keep God a man. That's the shocking nature of the gospel is that he ever became a man. But you must realize that God is not a mere man, right? And so we have to look at him as who he truly is, and adoration helps us do that. Two is confession, right? That's when we spend time saying, God, I need to put off my sin, and I need to put on your righteousness. And this week, God, I, I failed in this area, in this area, God, and I just want to repent. I want to take this moment in my life, and I want to turn away from my sin. I want to repent because I did not live according to your righteousness this week. That's confession. And you need to, that needs to be a part of every one of your prayers. Repentance isn't just something you do at salvation. It's a lifelong endeavor in holiness is the understanding that you have to repent of your sins. All right, A-C-T, Thanksgiving, right? You need a whole place in your prayer time where you're just giving God thanks for your salvation, for your family, uh, for the opportunity to share the gospel with people, to be a part of a church community, right? That he has given you food on the table, that he has allowed, all those. I mean, you, you should be able to spend time in your day thanking God for a number of things. And actually, I find myself, I'm like, well, it's everything. My breath, my particles, my hair. It just gets to this point. And if you're bald in here, you're like, I should have thought, thank God a little more for my hair when I had it. Like, I mean, you know, what I'm saying is you can think and think, man, there's everything that I need to be praying for, right? I mean, you, have, you could thank God for every single thing that has ever existed, and you're still not there yet. And so what I'm saying is you need to spend more time thanking God for prayer. And now, A-C-T-S, supplication. A great way to abundantly exercise your thankfulness is to be praying for others, right? Is in your prayer time that you're not making it all about you? God, if I just had more time, I'd pray for everyone else, but I only have time for me. So they're going to have to wait, right? No, exercise abundantly your thankfulness by making sure you're taking time to pray for others, understanding it's not all about you. It's actually not about you at all. It's about God and how he is intervening in the world. And the only time you came on that blip of the radar is when Christ came and redeemed you. Uh, That's where you came into the picture here. Uh, And as far as that goes, after that, it's not about you anymore anyway. It's about other people who need Jesus. And so your time in prayer needs to be about praying for the salvation of people, praying that God would draw people to himself. 
Of course, pray for the other things. You know, my aunt is in the hospital. My, you know, all those things, those are great. You need to be praying for those, that God would intervene in situations and that his will would be done. But you need to be praying about the bigger pictures of things. Now, that is A-C-T-S, Acts. That's a great way to pray and have a model prayer in your prayer life. Number one, pray. Uh, two is generosity. Right? You want to know to abound in your thanksgiving, to overflow in thanksgiving. Nothing says I'm overflowing in my thanksgiving more than when I'm being generous. Right? And I, of course, I'm talking about your wallet, but I'm not talking about your wallet. Okay? Uh, what I'm talking about is we had a couple day in a 9 o'clock service, so I didn't share this with them. I didn't share it at the 9 o'clock uh, just because they're, they're pretty new and they're applying God's word. And I didn't want to make it feel you know, uncomfortable, but I'll share with you guys. Our neighbors came and they, uh, they brought us uh, dinner the other night. And they did it because I'm pretty confident that in the previous week's sermon, we talked about, you know, doing things for one another, building up the body of church, encouraging people, bringing dinners over. And the, the great thing was they, they said, all right, all right, the Bible teaches it. I'm going to do it. And so they bring this over to our house. And you know what it was? It was generosity. Did that cost $1,000? No, but they took time out of their life. They cooked us dinner. They brought it over because they knew Mondays were mine and my wife's day off, and they knew, oh, I don't want them to cook dinner. They were thoughtful, sacrificial. I mean, all those great things, and they brought it over, and we had dinner. Like, think about that. Like, that's what I mean by generosity. Are you being thankful enough by trying to not make everything about you, and you're taking time to be thankful for all God's given you, and then give that to other people? And it does include your bank account, right? It does include your time. It does include your family. It includes all of those things, but we have to be generous people if we want to exercise our thankfulness. And third and finally is humility. Like I want you to, I want you to zoom in here. Because everything that I have just said before point three, uh, you can have a problem with, right? Well, self-righteous pastor who's brand new to this city, guns a-blazing, saying we're going to do all these things, and you need to live a righteous life. Listen, you're right. None of this can be done outside of humility. And we have got to understand that thankfulness flows out of a heart of humility. Now, hang on with me and listen to this. You know this to be true because you couldn't be thankful for your salvation if you weren't first humble. Because no one can come to Christ unless he humbles himself on the cross. Right? You can't do it. Right? No prideful person is ever going to enter the kingdom of heaven. No prideful person is going to enter the presence of God. Right? I can keep going on and on and on. So what I'm saying is our righteous living, right? all these things that we're doing, it's never done in a posture of pride. And the church should know that. Right? The church should be in like ultimate agreement. We're all like, yeah, righteousness for his sake and not ours. And we could never do it because we got to be humble people. Like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. But the problem is, is pride and sin and flesh enter into the church in a lot of different ways and people get hurt and offended. If we could all just say, hey, we all have a tendency to be prideful people. And just as Paul said earlier in Colossians 3, we got to kill that, right? We got to kill that so that righteousness can have its rightful place. I think the problem in many churches is we don't kill pride, and so righteousness can't take its rightful place in the church. Because if righteousness takes its place with pride, well, then we're going to be lifting up man and not God. But when righteousness takes its proper place and humility takes its proper place, the church becomes a place of righteousness for the Lord's sake, and so many good things are being done in the church, and it's not about us, it's about God. And so humility is a necessary part of being a Christian. Those are three ways that you can exercise your thankfulness uh, abundantly. You can overflow in your thankfulness. 
First Thessalonians 5 says you need to rejoice always, you need to pray without ceasing, you need to give thanks in all circumstances because this is the will of God for you. And so for you to understand that thanksgiving in your life is actually God's will for you, and it maybe you're one of those people who said, I haven't given thanks other than dinner uh, in years. Okay, well, I'm saying that that is God's will for you. You want to find yourself in God's will real fast, which you can't. It's called be thankful. Be thankful in all circumstances. Now, as we close, I want you to think about your testimony. I want you to think about your testimony. I was just uh, heard a story about a funeral that happened, and uh, this fella uh, who had passed away, the only testimony that they had at a celebration of life was how spirited he was when he was in school. He's an older fella, and he passed away. He's not nearly school-aged anymore. But the only testimony that they had of him was, oh, well, he was a great student. He was a great, he loved his school and he loved these things. That guy would have loved for his story to have entailed so many other things, right? I mean, just like you and me, if we die and we're at a funeral and people are giving our testimony, a eulogy, and they talk about you and I, you hope that they're talking about all the things that you have been fruitful in your whole life, right? All the things that God has done in your life to proclaim his message to the world, right? That's called a testimony, And imagine for a minute with me, if you would be one of these people who understand that being a Christian means that I got to turn away from my sins and I've got to trust in Christ. And being a Christian means that I have to have a necessary change in my life. There's a necessary change in my moral compass, my ethical decisions because I'm a Christian. Right? Keep going with me. All right. They're giving your eulogy and they said, you know what? This person's life, man, their life is completely different. They knew that they had to live righteous, but yet they never let their righteousness, it was never about their righteousness leading them to Christ. It was about their righteousness to lift high the name of Christ. They understood that they were no good in and of themselves, that they needed a Savior. But yet when they got saved, their life never looked more righteous. You know, when I'm in a eulogy and I start thinking about that, and then they say, you know what, they weren't perfect. You know, they weren't perfect, but I noticed every time they fell down or something bad happened, they got up, and you know what they did? They kept moving forward. They kept moving forward in righteousness. I asked them, what's going on? And they say, this is just what the Spirit of God does in our lives. It just keeps moving us forward. And this is your testimony at your funeral. Think about this. And there's people standing up there, and they're saying, you know, they weren't perfect, but, man, they kept moving forward in their faith, right? And, and then they, they end it by saying, and I want you to know something. There was not a more thankful person in the entire universe than that person right there. It exuded out of their life. It overflowed in their bank account, in their home life, in their family life. In every area in their life, it just overflowed with thanksgiving. And it reminded me how bad we all need Jesus. Like, what if that is your eulogy at your funeral? That's what you hope it would be. I, I know it is. But I want you to think for a moment right now, what would it be? I mean, would somebody jump on your favorite hobby? Would somebody jump on your favorite character in a movie? Because honestly, they can't think of something so significant to share with everyone that your life would influence. When we all as Christians have the opportunity for to propagate the gospel of the message of Christ, and the last thing that I can do in my legacy of life is lay down in a casket and die, and then the gospel be proclaimed to an entire city because of my life of righteousness that I have in Christ. You see the power of that. And what I'm saying is now it starts today and it starts with your life right now to create the type of testimony and legacy that Christ desires for all of us to have. Not a select few, not just the pastor, not just the the really, really spiritual people, but everybody. That, your testimony might not lift you high, but it would lift the name of Christ high. 
as we end uh, this sermon series, and this is the last uh, sermon in the Building God's Church series, we have to know that we have to walk the walk. It's the title of this entire uh, sermon this morning is Walking the Walk. And we have to understand that you and I individually have a part to play in building God's church. Right? I have a part to play, of course, but you individually, each one of us have a part to play. And I wonder what God could do in a church where every person is walking in faith. And when somebody falls down and stumbles, they get picked up by the church and we keep walking forward. But everybody's in agreement on walking in righteousness is important. Falling down and lifting them back up is so important. Walking in humility is so important. But whatever we're going to do, we're going to keep moving forward and walking in Christ so that we can build God's church. Imagine what that would look like here in New Braunfels if we would all do that together. Pray with me. God, we know your word. It doesn't come back void. We understand that whatever your Bible teaches, God, that if we would just walk in that, the fruit of that would just be multiplied tenfold, twentyfold, a hundredfold, five hundredfold. God, we know that, that when we pursue you in righteousness, understanding that it was never our righteousness that made us right with you, but it was our righteousness done because of what you've done for us. God, that will bear fruit in this time and in eternity to come when we get to see how our influence and our testimonies had moved hundreds and thousands of people to turn away from their sins and trust in you. I pray that's the testimony of this church in eternity. It's when uh, in eternity people talk about Compass Bible Church here in the Hill Country. They'll say, hey, it was because of the testimony of those people at that church that I realized my need for a Savior, that I realized that I could not do this on my own, that I realized that I needed a Savior. I needed an atonement for my sin because I couldn't do it. God, I pray that's our testimony and that as we continue walking in our faith here in New Braunfels, God, that it would just do miraculous things in the souls of the people in this city. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.